This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. Uh, it is Ramon who is present, uh, and so far it's only me. Um, Jonathan is actually helping a very sick child at work, so he might join us partway through this podcast. I'm not too sure yet, but if he does, um, it's not an issue at all. So welcome to the show for this week, and we'll just jump straight to the guest. And the guest uh, this week is Impiakit Lamini. Who lives in Newcastle of all places And describes himself as a Zulu anarchist Two words I never thought to use within one sentence But nevertheless, here's the man himself Mpiake, how are you sir? I'm good and you? Uh, one, one can't complain um, if, or if you do complain, no one cares So it's best not to <laughs> So, um, well welcome Thank you for, for joining well, me that is today. And Mbiaki, a strange thing about you is we've been Facebook friends for over a year now, and I've spoken to you for about two minutes in a year. So <laughs> I actually don't know much about you at all. So can you give a little bit of a historical context for our listeners, please? Yes. Uh, so uh, where do we start? Uh, do we go back to all the way to the dinosaurs? <laughs> okay. Maybe, but, uh, maybe tertiary <laughs> education. Yeah, okay. So um, I went to school at UCT and then uh, I dropped out after, yeah, after my second year. And then when I, I went back home to Newcastle, and that's when I started learning to, uh, programming. I started already at UCT because I was doing uh, physics, so I done a bit of programming there. And then, but I went back home to Newcastle and then I got more into it. And then, yeah, and then uh, in, in terms of my political development, also started at UCT with watching the presidential debates in 2008. So the big thing uh, was Obama. So, <laughs> yes. so I was uh, yeah, like I was all for Obama, and then like and then at the same time also got introduced to Ron Paul. So I could see that this guy was making a lot of sense. But then like <laughs> I was like, oh, Obama first first black president of the US, and I'm like, hey, okay, let's. Let's pause this uh, for later. Then, yeah, I was all in for Obama, and then I think by the by his uh, second term, 2012, uh, like that's uh, he faded off me. So I was like, uh, I was over Obama. So I decided, like, I I, I learned more about libertarianism, about Ron Paul, about the movement, Australian Australian economics. So that's yeah, that's why like I was fully I was fully libertarian by that point in 2012, and. Yeah, and before that, I'd been a, a socialist, a Af- Africanist, bigoist. Like I've done it all. Ah, so so you are so you could be the the next Andile if you stayed on course. Andile, <laughs> what's his name? I'll just say Unguptama because it's easy to say. Oh, Andile Unguptama. <laughs> that, 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 that's the one. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I don't think so, but yeah, maybe. So I mean, I mean, here's the thing, though. So in South Africa, there, there seems to be like a, quite a strong socialist tendency um, yes. amongst a lot of our population, and I mean, and I do include like Afrikaners and, and English and white people and like everyone. Like, there's quite a strong socialistic tinge to to the people of this country. And you being well, an ex-socialist, why was that? What did you see in it at the time that was beneficial to you? I, uh, for me, it was okay. Growing up, uh, my father was a communist as well. Uh, like I actually learned a lot from him. But yeah, he was a communist, a big fan of Chris Hani. And so, like there was just like there was there were no other options. Like that's all, that's all you knew. It was the states must fix all the problems. That's all we basically grew up with. So you don't you don't sort of think of. Uh, the, the unintended consequences, as Bastiat would put it, or like anything else, you just think of, okay, this is the only thing that's, this is the only way of solving problems using the state. And, it, uh, but you don't think about it, there could be a better way, or even that there could be negative externalities from the involving the state and all of that. You just think about what, uh, what you've, yeah, what you've been, what you've known. It's like, it's like what happens with, uh, how they teach economics at school. Because most people don't learn about Australian economics, so they only know that okay, there's only 
this the, uh, there's only the states has to be involved and you have to regulate the markets and all of that. So I think it's a similar thing it's because it's just like what you're exposed to basically. Yeah, I mean, and that that sort of does make sense to me because I myself was never ever on the left, uh, not that I can remember. I mean, Vitz tried really hard to make me a socialist. Uh, I had many arguments with my with my colleagues in law school at the time, and um, yeah, and they tried to convince me that this was the way forward, and I just I just never saw it that way. So yes, maybe it's because it's it's a lack of of uh, promiscuous reading. So people people take yes. something as true and then they just don't really try to understand other ideas. Yeah, like it's not being exposed to a, 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 a wide range of ideas, like you say. And so another thing is like um, race relations play a big role in it as well. Because obviously with the, the country's history and where we come from, you like you like there's always that uh, um, background of that the states was used to oppress uh, black people in this way before and then uh, there's almost a sense that okay the state must be used to redress that but then at the same time like there's never that connection that the the common denominator between all these um, problems was the state so it's like okay this, uh, it because like the, we get fooled by um, identity politics almost as if okay because the guy running the government now is a guy who has the same skin color as me so it means it means it's going to be different. Now it's going to have my back, yes. but then it's, it's it never turns out like that because um, they like most people most most people most people who are in power are just like us, surprising. So they just uh, they just want to what's best for them, and then like uh, there's even a, a whole thing in economics now called public choice uh, theory about uh, the incentives uh, that the politicians are subject to. So it's like so we they are not supermen, and then uh, like I think uh, it's only libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism that takes account of that fact that people are flawed and then like we are all flawed and then we, we, we can't say that I am flawed and you are flawed but then someone else that person is going to be better than both of us it never works out like that yeah. and so because of that history of race relations we think there's going to be someone who's going to have your back because of the, he has the same, he looks the same as you but it doesn't work out like that so yeah, I mean, I, I would disagree with you on one aspect of that. I think the people in, in power are worse than ordinary people, you know, that you and I know. Yeah, it takes a special type of perversion to want that much power with all the perks that go into it, right? And, and to, you know, to make laws and rules that everyone in the whole country has to follow, it's, yes. it's highly egotistical and I don't yes. generally like those sort of people. But let, let's go back one step. So you, so you were at UCT and you dropped out. Um, yes. and then now you studied programming by yourself. You taught yourself how to program. Yes, I started with uh, the Python programming language, which is like an, a gentler way to get introduced into the subject. So that's why I started. My whole uh, goal, uh, like, was always to go into like data science, data science and machine learning, and yeah. And so that was when I started. Back. But I ended up uh, being a web developer because, like, it was I suppose an easier way to get. Uh, it was an easier part to start making money rather than. Like learning lots of stats, lots of lots of linear algebra, and all that all all that other maths. But now I'm I'm trying to uh, move from web development into data science again. So it's a whole thing. But yeah. <laughs> so so I mean, in Piaga, how do you do it? I mean, if when I you know read what uh, fees must fall say, when I read what the government says, when I read what universities say, they all say they all they all. Practically on the same step, you know, free education for all, especially tertiary education. Um, you know, budget is an issue, but we'll try to work it out. And there's a ping pong between the universities and the minister of education as to who should fund which students, yeah. etc. No. Um, but, but here you are as someone who is working in the private sector, uh, for yourself, who has, you know, self-taught. Then, 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 but uh, fees must fall are not wrong when they say that degrees are expensive. They are right about that. Well, they but are. what they what they are wrong about is that education is is not expensive at all. In fact, it's free now. It's like it's a uh, a couple of years back you couldn't say that, but education is free now because you can go on YouTube and learn a completely new subject, like basically for free, just for for the cost of an internet connection. 
and so yeah it's i don't like i i made the same point during the last year when the protests were going on that's like instead people are complaining about uh making um university education free but education is basically free already what's needed now is uh, for government to drop their uh, like requirements for certificates for certain jobs like for example Okay, we can have an, a whole other argument about this. But, uh, for example, medicine, you have to be licensed to be a doctor, licensed to be an engineer. I'm not saying that they, they can't be standards, but like you, it's, it's, it's a fallacy to assume that only government can set standards. So, sure. like, all of those things. So, uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's one quote, which was, which was excellent. You know, education is free, but the certificate is expensive. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, you pay for the certificates. Yeah, and that's true in a way. I mean, I don't, I don't see great value in in universities these days. I mean, unless you really want to focus on like the STEM subjects, yeah, and you, or you really want to become an engineer or a medical, uh, profession, a, a medical doctor or things like that. I think that's quite beneficial. But to yeah. learn about like the arts or yeah. like sociology, oh, you can do that for free. But, but- but you know, are there is like there is something to be said for this because most of the knowledge that's accessible for free on the internet is, is originated at universities. So, like you have, uh, for example, I just did uh, uh, Andrew Ng's course on Coursera now, uh, machine learning course. It's like it started at Stanford, so the, the knowledge was produced at Stanford and then it made its way to the internet for free. So there is there is that thing that's okay. The universities are still producing the knowledge, but they are giving it basically for free. So unless you want to be, let's say, I think universities will evolve into places for where, like, for people who want to be academics, or like, it it won't be for people who want to just get an undergrad degree in something and go do something. So eventually, it will evolve into a place for postgraduate studies. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually a very good point. I mean, I'm not against the concept of university. I just think that they lost their way a little bit with all the, you know, bullshit politics on campus. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think your claim is correct when, if you have, you know, the cream of the crop academics uh, churning out this, this great work on, on, um, whatever, on, on what you're learning, machine learning or on yes. how humans think or the latest psychological results from the, ex- uh, the tests that they run and they punt that out for free. I mean, I think that's a very good use of the university. Yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, most yeah, ninety five percent of the knowledge or even more maybe is still produced by universities, but like they they have to focus on what they are good at and stop getting involved in like you know, so trying to uh, engineer society like you know what I mean like trying to make change what we think change how we, but they have to focus on what on what they are made for. Yeah, we'll just basically. we'll just leave that to the government, you know, to 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 make us. Uh, to, to re-engineer society. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're there for. In any yeah, way. yeah, they're working together. Like it's a, it's a, it's basically a, it's um it's it's interesting how it all works because you have all these academics and then they 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 go they go um, they basically create a market for themselves using government force. So government passes like the, all these uh, bullshit requirements, like diversity training and all of that, and this creates this uh, the demand for these academics, like uh, your gender studies professors, your uh, what what uh, a diversity professor, and, not, and then they get hired by companies because government has made it a requirement. So it's almost like an um, an incestuous relationship, if I can say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's actually quite a good point. I must be honest. Yeah. I must be honest. Yeah, so, so government set up standards for diversity. So, you know, we need a pencil test in every business in the country. Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, universities all of a sudden have diversity degrees. That's quite a exactly. remarkable, it's a remarkable coincidence. <laughs> hey, yay, <yeah>, man. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so in Biaki, I mean, Okay, I I get it. Okay, you, I mean, you're self-taught in programming. F- for for the record, listeners, I know absolutely nothing about programming whatsoever. I took Java in what what is it now? Grade eight, grade nine. I failed. I got about thirty-two percent. Or I think that's a pass these days. But in those days, it was a fail. So I know. What is weird? I think Java is like the worst possible way to start programming because it's it's a really tough language. Like there's a yeah. But anyway, yeah, it is like the, the syntax is all like it, it doesn't look uh, anyway like what you would see in, in your normal everyday life. I think Python, something like Python or 
basic or JavaScript is a much better way, but yeah. Yeah, but uh, as the, that's the problem with white privilege in PRK. You see, I went to a, a very fancy, well, apparently very fancy private school and you expected to know what Java is. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of the, uh, you know, when people talk about white privilege, they talk about the privileges, but not the, not the, the heavy uh, detriments that it has on, on a person as well. As in, you know, having to learn Java instead of Python. Yeah, but <laughs> I think you might need to recharge those privileged batteries. It didn't work out for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people keep telling me to check my privilege. I'm like, okay, now what? And then there's silence on the other side. But I mean, okay, yeah. I know, I know that you're not, um, Massively worried about race, uh, in this country. But I mean, do you have any, any cursory thoughts on race in South Africa? Actually, I was about to make that point. Actually, what, what, one of the things that triggered my, uh, move away from African nationalism was, uh, uh watching a BBC document, the BBC documentary on race. I think it's a four part documentary while I was at UCT. So, like, back then, you can ask anyone who knows me, I was a big, like, uh, African nationalist, like, I was at the, uh, I was at every DASO event, uh, like, uh, giving the speakers a hard time. <laughs> so, I watched that, like, document, and then I, it started the process, it didn't happen immediately, but it started a process in me where I realized that, you know, like, race wasn't, like, you can, you can get into a mindset of thinking that it's only about black versus white, but if you really consider where it comes from, it's actually, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, as we, as we understand it now, the, 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 where, what led to slavery basically and race. Slavery had existed before we had, uh, without racism for, uh, fine, black like for hundreds of years. Yes. But what was needed between, like, what happened, the marriage between racism and slavery happened because of, uh, the enlightenment, strangely enough. Because what you needed was to, a way to justify having all these slaves while believing that all individuals are, are equal and all of that. So you needed a way to say, okay, these people are less human than other people. So while if, so while the enlightenment was basically uh, of tremendous benefit to the whole of, to, to the whole of mankind, it, it also had that negative side effects because it was, it, it, it ended up leading, incentivizing the racism, the racism that we are familiar with. So. Okay, well, let me just let me just let me okay, wait. Let me just answer. I mean, just ask a few questions on that. So, are you are you claiming that while the Enlightenment had good principles, you know, the pursuit of truth, rationalism, individual rights, yes, yes, but there was a hell of a lot of pseudoscience that came along with it. You know, where people measured each other's skulls, and the size of your skull yes. determines <clears throat> your your humanity and your intelligence. And so that pseudoscience, I'm, I'm yeah. I'm saying because you you had you now had the concepts of individual rights, in order to enjoy to continue enjoying the economic benefits of slavery, which had been around for I don't know ever since human civilization began, you needed a way to just uh, to define those people who are being slaves as being less human than other people. Sure. So race, like it's something that you can see. So even though it's arbitrary, like in every other sense, but it's something you can see. So it was an easy way to say, okay, these people are less human than the rest of us. So we can uh, basically use them as slaves, and it's it's not wrong because they are not human anyway. So so something like that. Yeah, and often race wasn't the only factor, right? I mean, the, the Irish were were treated as slaves in in the U.S. Uh, very early on. Uh, before the slave trade actually started, so a lot of the slaves were Irish, right at the beginning yeah, of the slave trade. Exactly, and then like I'm right now, I'm reading uh, Thomas Sowell's Race and Culture, and he makes the point that uh, like to the the massive land grab that uh, England wanted to do in, in Irish required that to do, dispossessing the Irish of all their land, and then like they had to come up with all these things like the the Irish are lazy, the Irish are all of this and that and that to justify it to themselves. And I think for the same reason, because you now had the enlightenment, it wasn't just enough to say There's, these people have a different religion to us, so they must be less than us. It was You needed something more, basically. Right. You needed, right. Something, you needed a, bi- a biological reason. Well, a pseudo-biological one. I mean, yeah, none, yeah, of, none course, of these things were true in, in any way whatsoever. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. I get your points. I mean, what do you think... So, I mean, yes, I fully agree with you in that regard. But in 2017 in South Africa, I mean, do you see problems with racism? I mean, thankfully, the Gupta leaks came out and now everyone's worried about that. You know, so all the race merchants are now worried about 
the Guptas yeah. and Zuma. The, the, the problems, the problems we have with uh, racism in South Africa in 2017, uh, like the, the main problem is it's in the in the government it, because government is basically fighting a paper tiger. Like they are, they, they've set up this enemy for themselves. And it's an enemy that they keep fighting, and then like it's something that they use to mobilize support for themselves. And I think it's one of like, that's why I'm not a big fan of democracy because it allows something like that to happen. Because now they've they've set up this uh, like you can you see it's presented in the in the rhetoric around white monopoly capital, for example. Yeah. Because they've set up this uh, this uh, false enemy that they have to slay now, and then like which and the way they've set it up is that they will never actually defeat this enemy. So they, they've set up an enemy that they, they they claim that they want to fight and defeat, but they don't actually want to defeat them. So they, they keep on fighting and mobilizing support and getting people behind them to go fight. And uh, and it's just yeah, a whole big mess. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think personally speaking, white the so-called white monopoly capital and the ANC are like you know one they 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 partners in crime, so to speak. Um, I have it on good records that WMC uh, funds quite a lot of the ANC uh, party yeah. and a lot of the people within it. I mean, Sir Ramaphosa didn't get rich because he's a brilliant businessman. No, but uh, but look, in defense of business, I would say that uh, what you have to consider is like in a in a state like ours, the incentives on business, like how what would what it would take for a business to survive in the environment we've created with the policies that we have. So as much as we can blame business for doing like. The first instinct of any entrepreneur is to do everything to minimize risk and to maximize profits. So, like, the, the business is doing what comes naturally to them. Like, the, the, the finger, that we have to point the finger at government because that's where the problem starts. Because they've set up this problem by using, like, business can't com- compete with government force. They can compete with, <laughs> like, uh, with market forces, but they can't compete with violence. So the government has a monopoly on that. So the business has to toe the line, otherwise they won't they won't be able to survive in the market. Okay, okay, you make a good point. You make a good point. I mean, I, I still think they're complicit in some ways. I mean, uh, BE was created by big business, you know, in the early days uh, when they gave preferential treatment to members of the ANC in the late eighties. Uh, before they even came to power, it was quite inevitable at that time that the ANC will reach power sooner or later. No. So they co-opted a lot of the leadership to 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 roll. No, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like for business to try and buy influence by giving people board position, giving board positions, giving them shares. The problem is with government force. Like I don't mind what you do in your own. A company with your own property, but like, the problem comes when you are when you uh, get like uh, when you use the force of the state against me to compel me to do something. So that's that's the problem I see. So there's no problem with government, uh, with business uh, getting people from government into their business. That's fine as long as that doesn't result in less freedom for me. Yeah, but it does though. It does. It does though. I mean, if you if you if you have crony capitalism. Yes, which is essentially what we have. Uh, there's a distortion in the market in terms of pricing, in terms of in terms of reach. Uh, smaller competitors are squeezed out. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I mean, yes. Yeah, exactly. I agree about all of that. But my point is that who initiates the force? I agree that there's a problem of force in, like in general, in the market. In in yeah, but who initiates it? It's, it's the people that we've elected to be part of government. So the ultimate moral responsibility for that violence must lie with the uh, pe- people representing the government. Business is morally dubious causing up to the government in, in under those circumstances, but they don't bear the ultimate moral responsibility as I see it. Okay, okay. I get your point. I, I think we have slight nuanced disagreements, but your point is taken. <laughs> I, I get that. I get that. Um, uh, that that's why, by the way, I was, like, I was scored on Facebook because I suggested that... Uh, the, the Guptas, like, they deserve less of the blame. Uh, KPMG, uh, Bell Pottinger, all of them, they deserve much less of the blame than uh, government officials, like uh, the president, someone we've elected, like, all of those people, because those people, as I see it, have done much worse. And, like, because, you know, uh, Bell Pottinger has competitors. Uh, KPMG has competitors. But government uh, has, has a basic, has a monopoly on Use, using um, like they, they are responsible for enforcing the law and then they, they are also breaking the law so which I think is uh, unfair so they can choose 
how they can enforce the law selectively in order to benefit their cronies. And like you can't blame the cronies for that, even though they are morally responsible in some way. But like the, the ultimate moral responsibility, as I've said, lies with the government, the people who are initiating the force. Yeah, I mean, I actually agree with you. I mean, personally speaking, this might be a controversial opinion. Bell Pottinger and KPMG are just very convenient scapegoats. For the, exactly. for the extreme left to point at and say, oh, look, you see, corruption is not just only from the state. It's from yes. business as well. <laughs> it's from those dirty capitalists too. Yeah, the yes. dirty capitalists that worked with the state for like decades. And yes. now they're no longer necessary. So the state is dropping them like flies. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, Bell Pottinger doesn't exist anymore. And KPMG, yes. the whole board resigned. As yes. far as I'm aware, the, the president's still in power. I don't think he has yeah. resigned yet. No, the the only people who are escaping accountability so far are the government. Like everyone else is feeling the pinch. So <laughs> it's only government that has so far escaped responsibility. And then the problem with blaming the private sector for when they engage in like for putting the majority the most of the blame on the private sector for when they engage in, in admittedly immoral uh, corrupt practices with government is that government is responsible for enforcing the law. Yes. The private sector is not responsible for enforcing the law. So in, in in the way you have government breaking the law, which is they are both doing the private sector and government, but then one of the parties is also in, in, in responsible for enforcing the same law that they are breaking. So they are doubly guilty in my view. Oh, right. I mean, yes, yes. Okay, so we agree on that. I, yeah. I cannot fault you on that. Um, okay, okay. So economically speaking, we spoke briefly about this this afternoon. So... I look at the latest like employment figures, right? And it says we've yes. lost uh, 300,000 jobs in the past quarter or I don't yes. know what it was, 30,000 jobs in the past quarter. As a suburbanite from Joburg, I don't see that, right? I deal yeah. with, I deal with employed people all day. Uh, some of them, are, some of them are my clients. Some of them are my friends. Some of them are my family. Everyone I know so far still has a job because they highly skilled. They've got the necessary degrees. And their work is valued. Now, so someone like you, who lives in a, in a very, fairly rural area of the country, I mean, do you see that on the ground? Uh, for example, I'll just give you one example to illustrate the point. Uh, in, in Newcastle, you may know that Newcastle is famous for uh, textile factories, which were started by uh, mostly Taiwanese nationals that came to South Africa towards the end of apartheid. They started all these factories, and then like they, they employed, I think, a significant part of the population here in Newcastle for the longest time. And government basically uh, turned the other, uh, like to turn the other way. Like they didn't, they didn't enforce the labor laws too strictly. They didn't enforce the minimal, the sectoral de- uh, determinations for the minimum wage too, too strictly here. And so everything went on like this for a while. But then I think a couple of people died a few years back because they were locked in factories on something, and then the government clamped down hard. And now because of that clamping down, enforcing the minimum wage laws, the labor laws, and all of that, a lot of jobs have been lost. And then like I can say that's uh, basically, yeah, depression, like a, a mini depression that uh, sets in because people have lost jobs. It was one of the biggest employers here, and now like it's yeah, basically a sad situation. All right, so so just for for context, so before I mean all the laws were in place already, but they weren't enforced to any degree. Yeah, they were not enforced as strictly because uh, I think it was understood that these factories were employing a lot of people here, so there was this understanding. But then you know the the media started putting pressure on government when if um, like I, like I, I know it was uh, it was bad, people died. They, 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 they were locked in a factory and and some, and some people died. And then there was a national media media outcry, and then like, yeah, people lost jobs, and things are much worse off now. So I mean, so in Newcastle itself, uh, do you have like the the figures for unemployment there? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. But yeah, but it's noticeable. But, uh, so it's it's like uh, I I reckon say it's an anecdotal. So like, it's what it's what I see from neighbors, like people who used to work at these factories, and yeah, basically. Okay, and and now a bit of a personal question. Um, as a okay, as an anarchist in in the middle of KZN, I mean, are you are you ostracized to some degree, or or are people quite happy to discuss these ideas with you? 
Uh, like most people I meet are like uh, quite uh, quite open to discuss different ideas, even though they don't always they may not understand the first time I meet them what 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 my ideology is all about. But like uh, I've never found political intolerance here. I know that KZN is known for that, but I've never experienced like that to any significant degree. Maybe I just have tolerant friends, but uh, I've never had that problem particularly. I know it happens in some other parts of uh, KZN, but like I've never experienced it personally. Okay, so I mean, if you if you make the argument that you know the government shouldn't exist at all, yeah, they, they, people they, look they, at you they, with a white eye, don't you? Don't yeah, they? they look at me with a white eye, and then they come with those uh, the, the arguments that we know so well. Who will build the roads? Who will build the hospitals? And then 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 you have to go through the list, demolish them one by one by one. But then like after and then after a while, they just leave it. Like they just look at you like. There's something wrong with you, and just leave you, and just leave you like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And okay. So I saw this headline last week. So there's, there's a location or a township called France in Peter Maritzburg. So I was quite confused. But apparently, the local people there have started building their own houses because they've been waiting for RDP houses for almost two decades now, and they've had enough. Um, yes, I read about that. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought, which I thought was a great piece of of you know just self determination, emergent order, yeah, and people going their own way and doing the things that they want to do that, to make themselves wealthier, which is what I appreciate. Yeah, uh, and then that's that's one of the saddest things about uh, like the the democratic order that we have now is that like a lot a lot of people because they couldn't rely on on government during apartheid. There was a lot of uh, community activism, voluntarism, like civil uh, civil action, like uh, helping each other, stock fells, uh, funeral societies, like all of that, uh, and, and entrepreneurial drive, building uh, tuck shops, like and all of those things. But then, uh, as soon as like it's almost like uh, government gave 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 people permission to be complacent after 1994 because they started introducing all these policies that were supposed to help which but which did the opposite because for example look at something like uh, the welfare grant whereas before someone might have uh, decided to go sell like uh, on a corner sell sell veggies or whatever now they have this grant and then they don't have to do that so i'm not saying that like I know someone can take that the wrong way in saying that okay, no, it wasn't the right job for them and whatnot. But I, I, I personally feel that there's a certain, I don't know, certain pride to being able to work for your living, like no, not being, not relying on handouts. Yeah. And so I feel like that's been taken away for a lot of people to some extent. And then once you do, once you're in the system of working for a living, then you can start to think about like what else can you do to grow your income, to grow yourself and then or to start other businesses to, but like all that, yeah, that initiative is taken away from you when you're given a handout. I mean, I mean, yeah, I do agree with you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally against the welfare state as a pragmatic, uh, as a pragmatic use of my taxes. Um, cause I do think it alleviates suffering, which is something that I'm quite, uh, you know, adamant about. Um, but funny enough, uh, Ernst Roots, the deputy CEO of Afri Forum, he was on the podcast uh, a few months back and he said the same thing about Afrikaners now. Afrikaners mm. became very complacent during the National Party era. Yes, yes. And now Afri Forum was born, what, 11 years ago? And now they're doing extremely well because they do like a lot of community outreach and okay, yes. people don't like them for certain reasons. That's fine. I, yeah. I I'm, I'm, I sort of agree with them on some things and I very much disagree with them on other things, but we get along, um, every forum yeah. and us. We, we've been to their office, they've been to our, on our podcasts. And yeah, so they're taking that, that social order, uh, without state intervention and creating a, you know, a form of identity with it and, yes. and using, you know, combined resources to fulfill the objectives of the members. And I think that's a great initiative. And I think, a lot of other communities should have something like that. Yes, I agree, man. Like because I've seen growing up in a township, I've seen like where I sort of grew up towards uh, towards the end of apartheid. I was born in ninety one, so I saw like what's like things. I, I, I little I saw a little bit of what things used to be like in terms of the community self reliance and all of that. And I saw it get progressively destroyed as the years went by. And so it's, 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 it's a sad situation because it's like they, we also have some great, like some, some, some great uh, initiatives coming from the community. Like poly, communities used to police themselves. They used to, 
provide health care for each other. There's like everything that you can think of great government does. So I, I often wonder why. Like I think if you can, I think that the, the best hope for anarchists like me is in the townships because people like that have a memory of what it's like to be self-reliant. But I'm digressing. So, but like it's, uh, yeah, like a lot of things yeah. have been lost. Yeah, and unfortunately, people will see this as as a means of saying apartheid was fine, as or as they always tend to do. You know, if you speak about things before '94 in a positive way, even if it's self reliance amongst the black communities, it's, it means apartheid was fine. Obviously, that is not what we're arguing for. Yeah, no, the straw man is everyone's favorite enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's quite true. But however, I yeah. mean, Franz Crenier was on here a few weeks ago, and he spoke about a possible scenario called the breakup scenario. Okay. Where the government is unable to fulfill its obligations due to a lack of finance, a lack, uh, you know, a lot of money gets sent overseas, uh, they, they tax too highly and they're unable to recoup any of it, uh, to run the state in any efficient manner, well, as efficient as the government can run it. And yeah. France sort of says a possibility is that, um, communities will, will, just take over state services. So there'll be a renewal of this community Order yes. where people actually do provide services for each other's benefit and for themselves, uh, for yes. for competitive rates um, that are you know open to anyone within that community. So I mean there is hope in a way if the government falls yeah. over tomorrow, which but, is my but, which is my wet dream if I'm honest, um, that, that <laughs> people will start doing that again. Yeah, that that they they uh, like it's also a, a bit scary because the like you you. Some things almost have to get much worse before they can get better. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Because, uh, and then, but that's the scary part, the period between the, the worst parts and the, and things starting to get better. So, like, what happens? What feels it for it? So, but that's the part that uh, we must try and manage as much as possible so that it doesn't uh, turn into uh, like a nightmare for people. Like, we saw what happened in Somalia when the government collapsed. So we don't want a scenario like that. We want it to be something that we take charge of, and then it, it, that happens peacefully. But uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the same thing as well. And I think cryptocurrency can play a huge role in that. Oh, believe me. I mean, yes. I mean, ideally, I would want a gradual decline in in, in state power. As opposed yes. to an abrupt end, because an, an abrupt end breeds chaos. A gradual decline, people get used to it and, yes, and, and, right. are, and are prepared. But uh, that's the one thing that people didn't have in the past is, is cryptocurrency. So mm. for, mm. for laymen like me, can you give us a little brief explanation okay. of what cryptocurrency is? Okay, so cryptocurrency is basically a, a way of digitally representing value and transferring value without like having to reply uh, to rely on a like uh, to rely on a dead party or a central body that's uh, like a, a reserve bank that issues that uh, value or that transfers its value so it can hold happen between two people like as you go to a store and buy bananas or whatever you, you pay in cash there's no other party involved you just it's a transaction that's it's a peer to peer transaction that happens between two people so crypto is sort of the same way it's like uh, you you, the value is created in, in, in is, is created by one uh, like uh, by someone and then it's exchanged it's transferred to someone else without an intermediary and then like it's uh, how it works now is that you have uh, like for example uh, the blockchain the blockchain is like like it's uh, you have now can I describe it it's well, well the, the blockchain sort of like a ledger it's yeah, a distributed it's sort of like a ledger. and decentralized yeah. ledger that's the key yeah. thing yeah. Yes, yes, and so like it's uh, yeah, basically it's that it's like it's a way of 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 doing all these transactions that we usually associate with the central body, doing it uh, from one person to another without an intermediary, and it, I think it's yeah, it's a great hope that's like and it, what's enabled it now. The reason why it's came up now is because it's so uh, these things rely on like it, it's, it's a beneficiary of Moore's laws. So like as computation has gotten faster and cheaper. And some of these things have been able, like, it's the same with machine learning because the competition is gotten cheaper and faster. So these things have been possible now. So even though, yeah. So, for example, uh, cryptography has been a science for 
for donkey's years now. Cryptographic algorithms have been known. Hashing has been known for the longest time. But now, like implementing implementing it all efficiently, being able to do the the mining in the blockchain efficiently has now become possible because of the cheaper and faster computation. Right, and now you got you got these factories in 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 Japan of all places that are set up solely to mine for Bitcoin. So for people who don't yes. know, whenever there's a transaction on the blockchain, uh, there are what people are you know these people are called miners, and they verify the transactions. And and, and basically, and basically, it just runs it, it it just solves the computational problem. Basically, yes. runs an algorithm and then solves the problem. And then the first person to solve that problem has basically uh, mined that particular block and has confirmed those particular transactions. Right, and then they then they get rewarded in that cryptocurrency. Yes, they they they, they get like it's it's like a transaction fee, like the transaction fee that you pay at the bank. So that, that that's reward that they get. It's like yeah. yeah. They get the the miner gets a, a, a fee a, a part of the transaction. Yes, yes, and the difference yeah. is there's not just four miners. There's like millions of them all over the world who are all yes. who are all working, not in tangent, so to speak, but they're all working for the same fee. So, yes. so I mean, it's a the blockchain itself is a brilliant system, and I don't want to go too much into it because next week we actually have. Uh, Justin McCarthy back on the show and he oh. is the chief executive of Project Ubu which is the first local cryptocurrency that has just gone live. <laughs> I know this. let's not spoil the surprise. So let me not spoil it too much. So tune in next yeah. week for Justin McCarthy. Um he'll be on. So Mpiake, uh what the else do I you know these things when when I'm with my co-host it's a lot easier because he has these weird ideas and I have these weird <laughs> ideas and we somehow make them work within the podcast if I do yeah. it by myself it's it's quite weird um so okay so if you had to if you had to run government as a as a despot as a as a Robin Mugabe of of Newcastle i mean what would, what would you do what would you what would you do what what do you think of like the 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 uh, race based legislation and the economic policy that we have like how would you change those things well i think the my main area of focus if like if i it depends if like i had unlimited political capital or not but okay i'm a despot so i have basically unlimited political capital i would start with the uh, south african uh, like South African Reserve Bank legislation of 1989, I think, just uh, repeal that. So I will start there and just make it, it make it possible for people to, uh, like, for for currency competition to exist. So anyone can come up with their own currency and sell it like any other product in the market. And I think that's alone that like, could help a lot in terms of uh, the inflation problem. That's that, that's the perpetual blame of the South African economy. Because one of the main issues we have to deal with in South Africa is that government messes up the currency and the rest of us have to live with it. So I will start with uh, trying to solve that problem. But the next thing that I would uh, probably do is like deal with the minimum wage and labor laws. I think there's one, like they're probably the most significant factor why people are are still poor. So I would deal with the, like uh, the labor relations act. With the like, to have no more sets the sexual determinations of all the minimum wages to zero, and yeah, just well, <laughs> that, that is the real minimum wage, though. Eh? The real minimum yeah. wage is zero. The government can say it's three and a half thousand rand or whatever it is, but yeah. uh, the real the real minimum wage is zero, especially if you've got no job as we've got in this country. But yeah. uh, Russell Lamberti, I keep referring to old guests on the show. So Russell Lamberti was on here a few weeks ago, and he said jobs is just the symptom of not creating wealth in the economy. So yes. people say there's not enough jobs and we need job creation. Actually, what they're supposed to say is we need wealth creation. We need more people making more things that other people value. Yeah, That's I think he's right there. Yeah, he's right. Because what's what's happened now is like we basically extract these minerals, export them, and the, the rest of the, 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 the primary sector is like agriculture, mining, and then the rest of it is like services. So we've basically we extract we extract minerals, send them overseas, and then because manufacturing has become so uh, regulated and and like so risky for anyone to try, it's like everything else is like there's a there's a depression almost because nothing there's no productive there's no productivity in the economy like the Crassel says so. We could if we could deal with that, remove all the not all the risk, but remove all the government risk, and then. We could we could see much better outcomes from the economy.
and then they might they would be much better investment like in terms of government always complains that there's not enough investment so much trillions are sitting at at banks but then they must look at what can be done to allow investors to be able to be confident or to feel that they can make uh, have higher returns from their money in the South African economy rather than uh, like in passive investments like uh, your money market or something else. So the government needs to think seriously about that because they, they are basically the main obstacle to everything. Yeah, well, once again, unfortunately for our listeners, there's nothing I can disagree with on that one. Um, yeah. I'm just following, I'm just going through your Facebook uh, profile once again. And last week there was this News24 story about an advert in Cape Town, of course. And, yes. and, and the, doc, the job description says, please note, only white candidates. And then, <laughs> and then you said, this is just, this is stupid racism. Just do what some other recruit, recruiters do. Advertise yes. a position and fills out the black people at every stage. And if one makes it, restart the entire process. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's happened to me a few times, unfortunately. Really? But, uh, yeah, but what I say is like, like uh, ma- the market deals with racism much more effectively than what you can get from like a Kutu government legislation. Because like if if like someone for every one com- for every competent person who's re- uh, who, who loses out a job because of racism. There are two, maybe two other competitors willing to hire that person to get an edge over that over that uh, employer who lost out on a product in the individual. So, 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 so yeah, can you give me a bit more more context? I mean, how do you know that you were rejected a job due to being black? Well, uh, okay, are you, you like there's no smoking gun or anything like that. Sure. But what basically? Basically, what happened was like uh, what happened a few times that I applied for a job and then like I, I'm, I'm the top candidate after the final stage, and then like uh, the, like I'm the only candidate remaining after the final stage, and then the recruiter will come back to me saying, "No, the client has these new requirements. Sorry," and then like so. <laughs> oh, really? So how do they, how do they couch those terms? Like, what are the new requirements? Is it like you must have your own car or something uh, to that effect? Uh, some, sometimes it's like uh, we needed someone more senior. Sometimes it's like uh, it's something like so we needed someone who lives in uh, like they wanted someone who lives in Cape Town. Some like they uh, it's, it's a variety of excuse. I what I think are excuses, but like uh, there's no smoking gun. So yeah, like uh, as much as it could be the racism, it could also be just you know be, be them being honest about the changing requirements. So I don't normally try. I don't normally get hung up on those things. So I don't even think about them too much. So. And if I may, say, may I ask, oh, why not? Uh, because, because I because I, I mean, believe in moving forward. I don't believe in moving yeah. forward. Like I don't hold grudges. Like there's for every opportunity that I lose out on, there are probably two or three more. So I mean, out there that's I mean, available to grab. I mean, that's interesting because. I mean, I mean, you're free to do whatever you wish, of course. Um, yeah. But I just think, with the history of the country uh, as we have it, and the current failures of of the state to do anything meaningful in any single way, it must be it gets a bit, uh, you know, disheartening after a while to be rejected for, if if you believe it to be for for race. But the thing is, it's your life. So if you get rejected to the point of inaction, then what's the, like it's your life. You still have to survive. You still have to live. So what's the point of that? You still have to move forward. You need to do something and continue being uh, doing the like the really good work that you've been doing. Because uh, I don't think most people are racist. So as much as they can be those individuals that uh, have that mindset, that believe in shutting out people because of the color of their skin, there are a lot more individuals who are willing to give you a chance. Even because even for, even uh, speaking for myself, like the how I like I, after a while learning programming, I was stuck for a while and I didn't know what else to do. And then like, and then uh, I I went on LinkedIn, searched for programming companies in Newcastle, and then I I met I met a, 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 my mentor who happens to be a white African guy, who who who, told, who like who guided me, taught me a lot, and then yeah helped me get certified in JavaScript and did all of that for me. So like you can't like life. Like life is not defined by like your racial experience only. Like there's other things there, are other good people out there. So that's what I've learned anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a great way to see it. I mean, 
I, I, I don't know how many other people would do that. I don't know if I would do that, if I'm honest. I mean, I've been rejected. I don't know if it was from race or anything like that. But when I get rejected, I get like quite pissed off because I think I'm quite good at what I no, do. No, uh, believe me. <laughs> believe me. I, 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 did, I did get pissed off for a while. But then, like, you, it's waste energy. <laughs> After a while, there's some wasting energy. Yeah, I could be doing something positive with this. Uh, so... And besides, I've met so many other good people that like those few bad individuals don't are not worth my time. Yeah, and, and you're not on Twitter, so you don't get to see it every single day, right? <laughs> yeah, Facebook is pretty bad as well, but yeah, I, I, I am on Twitter, but I don't use it that much. I just go in there occasionally to share my latest article or something. Right, right. Well, well, don't go on Twitter. I mean, I, I take enough heat as is. We, uh, it, it just makes you very nihilistic and pessimistic about about South African society. And then you then yeah. you actually remember. Oh wait, Twitter doesn't actually mean anything yeah. in reality. <laughs> but yeah, but you make a good point. Like there's okay, as as anarchists, as libertarians, we're not we're not saying that you must have rose tinted. Uh, you must wear rose tinted glasses and believe that everything is all sunshine and ice cream. But like you must. You must. People are flawed. That's 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 our fundamental premise that people are flawed, and therefore no one no one person should have power over everyone else. Yes, due to those flaws. I mean, yes. I think I'm more cynical than most. I do think if you give the majority of people freedom, they are not going to like really treat each other very well. It's the freedom of speech argument, right? If you if you allow people, every person, to say exactly what they want, a lot of the stuff that comes out of their mouths is not going to be nice. Yes. Right. But, but the, the, but the, but the way to, to, to work with that is not to, to shut them up. Yes. It, it's to let them talk absolute crap and yes. you, you counter them or you mock them or you ridicule them completely. It's, it's like this anti, um, uh, anti Holocaust law in Europe, right? In some countries, you're not allowed to say the Holocaust never happened. Yeah, in Germany. Yeah, and there's a very famous historian called David Irving, who's a very well-known Holocaust Holocaust denialist. Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah, and he went he went to prison. I mean, I read his book. Funny enough, um, and it was rather unremarkable. Um, And he went to prison for saying that the you know the the Holocaust didn't happen in the way that we thought. There were a few like hundred thousand deaths, but nothing in the millions, right? The Mm -hmm. the irony is, you put him up against a real historian like there's a guy called David Starkey, for example. You put him up in a debate. You film that. David Starkey will utterly humiliate him to such a degree that he wouldn't come out of his house ever again without being mocked (laughs) for having these stupid views. And that's how you deal with people that are idiots. You don't lock them up. You shine a light on it. Like shine a light on the darkness, basically. Yeah, but people just want to, just want to shut up the darkness, you know, and put the darkness away in a dark cell forever and then forget about it. And somehow that will solve problems. And I don't understand that. Yeah, that's why you have so the 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 rise of nationalism in Europe and the USA now, like the rise of uh, like the, the nationalism that brought uh, that brought Trump and like the, the the same you see the same phenomenon in Europe with the AFD in in, in Germany. So yes. like that, that's what's causing that is that is that abandoning our liberal principles basically the the principles of free speech on shining a light on everything. We've now said okay, this you you can't think like this, you can't do this, you can't feel this, and then people have uh, gone away into their own dark corners, and it has grown into something that's unmanageable now, while it, can, it could have easily been dealt with when it was still festering by exposing it to much better ideas. Yeah, I mean, especially with the internet now, you can't shut down ideas anymore. I mean, yes, I mean yes. it's ridiculous to, even in South Africa, the Human Rights Commission, what, what a kangaroo court, right? <laughs> if you got someone that says, gay marriage is terrible, um, Okay, why fine him? Why order him by order of court to say sorry and make a donation? It's it's yeah. it's remarkable that this is seen as just yeah, stupid. It's because uh, like another thing that I found is because we have so many what's are called dead. Uh, I think dead generation rights in our constitution. Dead order rights, uh, like it's we don't we don't have like the original. Uh, Rights as uh, what are called natural rights as conceived by law. We have so many like bullshit rights, like uh, a right to housing, a right to water. Like, uh, the you don't have a right to, ones, yes. Yeah, you don't have a right to someone else's labor. So, like, I find interesting this week, I found something by 
uh, it was a, a something called the Mashabatini Declaration of Fate signed by Harry Schwartz and uh, Mangosutsu Butelezi in 1974. Yeah. So it was it basically it was sort of like a, a declaration of how South Africa should uh, resolve its problem, the resolve the race issue, what kind of constitution we should have, some something similar to the Freedom Charter. But now instead of what the Freedom Charter is it's like the perfect representation of dead order rights, but then the, this document speaks of natural rights, liberty, life and property, they speak of federalism. So it was like it for me just showed like what the the duality of South Africa like what it we, we could have gone a different path. Yes, we, we didn't have to go this way. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, until until the ANC's People's War came about, I don't know if you know much about that. <laughs> yeah, I've read I've read the uh, anti Jeffrist uh, article. Oh, have you? Okay, I haven't, yeah. I haven't read it. Uh, but we're having you on the show also quite soon. So the People's War basically was take was was trying to get hegemony within the country. Yes, and, yes. And the only way for the ANC to get hegemony was to destroy black opposition. Yeah, uh, and basically they did that through violence. Uh, oh. Destroying the IFP in KZN, destroying Azapo, destroying yeah all these other movements. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, imagine imagine if the ANC was just another, uh, you know, just another a paragraph in the books of history. Imagine, for example, the IFP came to power, or they were like the official bargaining partner at Kodesa. Yeah. I mean, this would be a, a very very different place. Yeah, it would. I, I think it would have. But then at the same time, you have to imagine what if Azapo. Had been had come to power, yeah, <laughs> and then they had been the bargaining party. Then it would have been a much worse place. So that's <laughs> so, so we, we so <laughs> we got gone either way. Yeah, so we got mediocrity as always. That's the thing yeah. about South Africa: the leadership is so mediocre, but the people are generally quite cool and well, not cool. The people are generally like quite good and and we, uh, we don't hate each other. That's no, that's my point. Yeah, yeah, but the leaders, but yeah. we, we keep voting in these shitty leaders. <laughs> I just it's, no one can understand it. I think it's because of the like of the bad ideas and then like motive, uh, mobilizing people on the basis of like race, like ma- making people feel good about like uh, taking revenge and mobilizing on the basis of race and uh, a tribal identification, saying okay, you belong to my group, so this group is against us. We must go and fight against that group to get what we want. So all of that stuff. So we, I'm hoping to we we can sort of begin to spark. Uh, a, a, a principles-based uh, debate, ideological debate, instead of just arguing on the basis of group identity. And I'm hoping we can eventually get to that point, and I'm hoping that spark is starting to be slid, slid now. But we'll see. Uh, you, and, you and me both, sir. You and me both. I think principles and ideas are far more important than, than ethnicities yeah. and, and cultural groups. I mean, I fully respect if a cultural group wants to remain separate from everyone else. Yeah, definitely. I respect the notion. I don't think it's a good one. Uh, because I do think life is fuller with people who are different to us, but yeah. I mean it's their right to do so, and I fully agree with that if they but, wish to do so. But someone else would counter with that, like the, for example, the Jewish community has remained cohesive and relatively insular throughout history, and it has worked for them. So, like, there's it goes back to the whole thing of value subjectivity. Like, there's no in in the world today, there's no one size fits all. So there are many different answers, we, all of which work under certain conditions at different times. And the, and the key to making sure that all those answers get a chance to be represented is by not enforcing any of them through force. It's by allowing all of them to compete in the marketplace of ideas and in the marketplace of solutions, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I cannot, I cannot disagree with you on any of those points whatsoever. And if people agree on principles and ideas, irrespective of culture, race, or anything else, that's when you have an enlightened society. And hopefully, sooner or later, that will be the case for, for yeah. maybe for us and maybe for for <laughs> other parts of the world too. Yeah, and maybe for my daughter and your daughter, like we they live in a better world than what we're living in now. Oh, God willing, but it's not too bad. I must be honest. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. moan about it, but we live in the greatest era of of human history, and we tend to exactly. forget that as well. Exactly, exactly. Right. Well, Mr. Lamini, that was an hour of uh, just just great discourse. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you yeah. did too. Uh, me too, definitely. <laughs> okay, good. You weren't you weren't paid to say that, and no, uh, no. <laughs> and and so where can people find you if you want to be found? That is. Uh, like I write for the standard, so they can check out my article on the on rationalstandard.com. So apart from that, 
yeah, they can check me out on Facebook if they want. It's Mpiakilamini, but yeah. But if you want to get my a true representation of my ideas, because I post a lot of um, no, like unrelated stuff on Facebook, but if they want to get a fuller uh, idea of what my ideas are, they can check out the rational standard. And yeah, that's it. Perfect. And we'll link to that as well when this episode releases. So, Mr. Lamini, thank, thank you. you so much, sir. Uh, thank you for the great conversation, man. Uh, the player is all mine. That's what this podcast is all about. And I'm very happy to have one with you. Ah, uh, you too, man. Thanks. All right. See you on Facebook. Yeah, sure, bro. Cheers, mate. Sure. And that was Mr. Lamini, uh, MP Yakit Lamini, who joined us. And, um, yeah, good chap. I mean, as I said, I followed him on Facebook for a year and a half or so and never actually spoken to him in person. This is the very first conversation we ever had and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So if you enjoyed it, yeah, let me know. So as always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm sure you know exactly where to find us. You're listening to us after all. So that is that. See you next week with my co-host and with hopefully Justin McCarthy to talk about Project Ubu, the very first local cryptocurrency in South Africa. Until then, have a good one. Cheers. This is CliffCentral.com.